Well, if there was ever a sermon text that, uh, or a sermon where I had to set my hope on Jesus, uh, it's this one. Uh, I, I mentioned in the last sermon that I preached out of Daniel, uh, which was on Daniel's 70 weeks, uh, Daniel chapter 9, verses uh, 24 through 27, that that was the hardest text I had ever tried to preach from. Uh, well, it's been eclipsed uh, by this one, uh, Daniel 11. And for different reasons, uh, as you will see, uh, the, the 70 weeks prophecy was a short text, uh, basically, but it was a very opaque text. Uh, it was interpreted 15 different ways by 15 different scholars. This one, largely, uh, every scholar agrees on what's being said, but uh, as you'll see in this text, it just, it's, it's a massive text of ancient world history, uh, which made for a very uh, difficult time this past week. Uh, so buckle up. Uh, one of the things that, uh, that we're going to do differently today is I'm going to read from a different translation. Because it's so long and because uh, it is so complicated, uh, just a lot of battles fought and a lot of different people involved, uh, we're gonna, I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation today. It's a little bit more paraphrased, and I think it'll make it a little bit more understandable. Now, I realize probably none of you have one of those, so we have it uh, up here. So as I read, uh, you can follow along, and uh, I had uh, Donna make me a 14-point, uh, hopefully I can read it. Uh, up here. Now, again, if you have your Bibles, though, uh, keep them with you because uh, we will be, you know, looking at various passages and stuff as I go through the sermon, and, and we'll be looking at those in the ESV. Uh, so, here we go. Daniel chapter 11. This is, by the way, uh, just to, uh, to give you a little bit of background here, this is uh, the angel that was speaking previously to Daniel in chapter 10 is still speaking here. Chapters 10, 11, and 12 kind of all go together. Uh, so as I begin here, realize that this is that angel speaking. I have been standing beside Michael to support and strengthen him since the first year of the reign of Darius the Mede. Now then, I will reveal the truth to you. Three more Persian kings will reign to be succeeded by a fourth far richer than the others. He will use his wealth to stir up everyone to fight against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king will rise to power who will rule with great authority and accomplish everything he sets out to do. But at the height of his power, his kingdom will be broken apart and divided into four parts. It will not be ruled by the king's descendants, nor will the kingdom hold the authority it once had, for his empire will be uprooted and given to others." The king of the south will increase in power, but one of his own officials will become more powerful than he and will rule his kingdom with great strength. Some years later, an alliance will be formed between the king of the north and the king of the south. The daughter of the king of the south will be given in marriage to the king of the north to secure the alliance, but she will lose her influence over him and so will her father. She will be abandoned along with her supporters. But when one of her relatives becomes king of the south, he will raise an army and enter the fortress of the king of the north and defeat him. When he returns to Egypt, he will carry back their idols with him, along with priceless articles of gold and silver. For some years afterward, he will leave the king of the north alone. 
Later, the king of the north will invade the realm of the king of the south, but will soon return to his own land. However, the sons of the king of the north will assemble a mighty army that will advance like a flood and carry the battle as far as the enemy's fortress. Then, in a rage, the king of the south will rally against the vast forces assembled by the king of the north and will defeat them. After the enemy army is swept away, the king of the south will be filled with pride and will execute many thousands of his enemies, but his success will be short-lived. A few years later, the king of the north will return with a fully equipped army far greater than before. At that time, there will be a general uprising against the king of the south. Violent men among your own people will join them in fulfillment of this vision, but they will not succeed. Then the king of the north will come and lay siege to a fortified city and capture it. The best troops of the south will not be able to stand in the face of the onslaught. The king of the north will march onward unopposed. None will be able to stop him. He will pause in the glorious land of Israel, intent on destroying it. He will make plans to come with the might of his entire kingdom and will form an alliance with the king of the south. He will give him a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom from within, but his plan will fail. After this, he will turn his attention to the coastland and conquer many cities. But a commander from another land will put an end to his insolence and cause him to retreat in shame. He will take refuge in his own fortresses, but will stumble and fall and be seen no more. His successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor, but after a very brief reign, he will die, though not from anger or in battle. The next to come to power will be a despicable man who is not in line for royal succession. He will slip in when least expected and take over a kingdom by flattery and intrigue. Before him, the great armies will be swept away, including a covenant prince. With deceitful promises, he will make various alliances. He will become strong despite having only a handful of followers. Without warning, he will enter the richest areas of the land. Then he will distribute among his followers the plunder and wealth of the rich, something his predecessors had never done. He will plot the overthrow of strongholds, but this will last only for a short while. Then he will stir up his courage and raise a great army against the king of the south. The king of the south will go to battle with a mighty army, but to no avail, for there will be plots against him. His own household will cause his downfall. His army will be swept away, and many will be killed. Seeking nothing but each other's harm, these kings will plot against each other at the conference table, attending, attempting to deceive each other. But it will make no difference, for the end will come at the appointed time. The king of the north will then return home, home with great riches. On the way, he will set himself against the people of the Holy Covenant, doing much damage before continuing his journey. Then, at the appointed time, he will once again invade the south, but this time, the result will be different. For warships from western coastlands will scare him off, and he will withdraw and return home. But he will vent his anger against the people of the Holy Covenant and reward those who forsake the covenant. His army will take over the temple fortress, pollute the sanctuary, put a stop to the daily sacrifices, and set up the sacrilegious object that causes desecration. He will flatter and win over those who have violated the covenant. But the people who know their God will be strong and will resist him. Wise leaders will give instruction to many, but these teachers will die by fire and sword, or they will be jailed and robbed. During these persecutions, little help will arrive, and many who join them will not be sincere. And some of the wise will fall victim to persecution. 
In this way they will be refined and cleansed and made pure until the time of the end, for the appointed time is still to come. The king will do as he pleases, exalting himself and claiming to be greater than every god, even blaspheming the god of gods. He will succeed, but only until the time of wrath is completed. For what has been determined will surely take place. He will have no respect for the gods of his ancestors, or for the god loved by women, or for any other god, for he will boast that he is greater than all of them. Instead of these, he will worship the god of fortresses, a god his ancestors never knew, and lavish on him gold, silver, precious stones, and expensive gifts. Claiming this foreign god's help, he will attack the strongest fortresses. He will honor those who submit to him, appointing them to positions of authority and dividing the land among them as their reward. Then, at the time of the end, the king of the south will attack the king of the north. The king of the north will storm out with chariots, charioteers, and a vast navy. He will invade various lands and sweep through them like a flood. He will enter the glorious land of Israel, and many nations will fall, but Moab, Edom, and the best part of Ammon will escape. He will conquer many countries, and even Egypt will not escape. He will gain control over the gold, silver, and treasures of Egypt, and the Libyans and Ethiopians will be his servants." But then news from the east and the north will alarm him, and he will set out in great anger to destroy and obliterate many. He will stop between the glorious holy mountain and the sea and will pitch his royal tents. But while he is there, his time will suddenly run out and no one will help him. <clears throat> yeah, wow indeed. So, what do we do with this text? This is the question I had in my mind all week. But I want, uh, because, you know, obviously there is no way in this one sermon that I am in any way going to get into all of the detail of what I just read. But let's try to get some points out of this. Uh, in fact, one of the scholars that I, I read this week just simply said, look, no preacher should even try to preach this. Uh, but then I read Sinclair Ferguson, and he said, you know, yeah, preach it, because God's word is, all of it is uh, worthwhile. So I went with it. Uh, that's one of the things that we do when we preach straight through books of the Bible. So to try to simplify it, let's keep a couple of things in mind. <clears throat> First of all, let's keep in mind that chapters 10, 11, and 12, again, as I said, are one whole. I mean, they're divided into chapters, but those chapter divisions came way later than, you know, the actual uh, you know, scroll that was written. And what happens in chapter 10? Well, Jeff uh, showed us last week, in chapter 10, Daniel uh, receives uh, essentially an uplifting from an angel, he was in deep mourning because the, the, the exiles had returned. Daniel's now about 85 years old. This is three years after Cyrus has issued the decree. So we're talking about 536 BC. Daniel is mourning because he catches wind that things are not going well for the returning exiles. They have a lot of opposition. And so he fasts for three uh, weeks, and then an angel comes. A lot of scholars think it's Gabriel. We're not given the name of this angel. But the angel tells Daniel that the reason it took him three weeks to get to him is because he was delayed. He was delayed by a battle that he was in. This battle was not seen. 
by any human being because the battle was in the unseen realm. This angel had to battle the prince of Persia and that delayed him getting to Daniel. But he said, Michael, the archangel, your prince, the one over Israel, came to my aid. And then the angel even says here at the beginning of, of 11.1, he says, as for me, this is now the angel speaking, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. He's talking about Michael. One commentator said, look, if this is Gabriel, imagine the strength and power of Gabriel, that he is helped by Michael the archangel and then returns the help and helps Michael the archangel defeat his enemies. <clears throat> And then we see in uh, chapter 12, which we'll look at next week, Lord willing, at that time shall arise Michael, again the archangel, the great prince who has charge over your people. So keep this in mind, that this warfare that is going on in the invisible, unseen realm between angels and demons, this warfare that we do not see, is bracketing the history of the world that we do see. That what we see in the seen realm, in the clashes and the warfare and the sin that goes on in history that affects God's people is in part the result of the warfare that is going on in the unseen realm. We need to keep that in mind because if you're like me, we often neglect, even though the Bible again and again and again speaks of what goes on in the unseen realm. We lose sight of it because it's unseen. But Paul says this, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So this history is being worked out in history in part because of what is going on in the unseen realm. Keep that in mind. But secondly, how do we simplify all of this history? Well, we, I've come to this conclusion that you can break this down into four parts. Verses two through four, verses two through four, very brief, three verses. It covers massive uh, swaths of history covering great powers in history. Very briefly covering very great powers. And then, beginning at verse five, it suddenly zooms down really closely to look at intricate details of people that most of us have never heard of before, these kings of the south and north. Why does it do that? Why narrow down and look at that? Well, because the angel in chapter 10 tells Daniel that what he's going to reveal to him pertains to God's people. It's a selective history. This is not an exhaustive world history, obviously, even as detailed as it was and as long as it was. The angel is revealing to Daniel, this is what is going to happen that will affect God's people. That's what I'm concerned about, the angel says. Verses 5 through 20 then, much 
larger span of verses looks at, the way I sum it up, as history as seen from the vantage point of God's people suffering collateral damage. Verses 21 through 35 narrow down even more. And this great span of verses is given not to a broad swath of human history, not even a smaller, more narrow swath of human history, but it narrows down, and all of these verses are given to the reign of one man. We've seen him before. His name is Antiochus Epiphanes. And in this section, verses 21 through 35, I believe what we're seeing here is history as seen from the vantage point of God's people suffering not collateral damage, but persecution. And lastly... And here's where scholars differ. And here's where I'm going to tell you that I may have a different opinion next month. But for now, I believe that verses 36 through 45 show us history as seen from the vantage point of God's people suffering persecution throughout history and into the last days before Christ returns. But let's take a look at these sections. The first one here, verses 2 through 4, again covers a large swath of of history that is the history that most of us know. I mean, if we know any ancient history, we know about these characters. Because in verses 2 through 4, what's talked about in enough detail that, that historians can read this and say, yes, that's exactly what happened in history. We see what happens to these little minor Persian kings that follow Cyrus, followed by a fourth Persian king who's far richer and far more powerful than the three that preceded him, and his name, which most of you have heard, is Xerxes. We read about Xerxes in the book of Esther, if you want to go see what what he was like. But Xerxes, yes, we, we see here in this in this prophecy given to Daniel about all these things that are going to happen in the future was far richer. His wealth is incredible. Again, go read the book of Esther. And he does attack Greece. And we know about those attacks. Some of you have seen the movie 300, or you've heard about the Spartans that held off this massive Persian army. That happened during these attacks where Xerxes went against Greece. And then uh, what we see here is that uh, some history is skipped over. Again, here's where we get to where this history is selective. But the angel jumps from Xerxes 130 years into the future to talk about Alexander the Great. And again, we've heard of him. Alexander the Great's already been talked about in these previous visions. Uh, He's been depicted as a leopard with four wings, you may remember. Alexander is the mighty king who arises and rules with great dominion and does as he sees fit. And, as has been already talked about in Daniel, Alexander's kingdom is broken at the height of his power. His kingdom is broken uh, when he was still a a, a very young man and again ruling at at the peak of his power. But as is told Daniel, his kingdom is not given to his posterity but rather split up among four of his generals. It's exactly as the angel says to Daniel. 
In fact, I just want to tell you that, that scholars, are, again, are amazed at the detail and the exactness of this entire chapter. What they say is, if you read this chapter and you just look at world history, you can see how all of these things pertain exactly to the letter of all these different characters in history. It's amazing. Hundreds of years later, all of these things came to pass exactly. One scholar says this, Daniel 11 refers in specific, historically identifiable way to 13 of the 16 rulers of these two kingdoms between 322 and 163 BC. There were 16 rulers. Daniel chapter 11 refers in easily identifiable ways precisely to 13 of those 16 rulers that we know of in history. Now, again, it skips over 130 years, goes to Alexander, and then we see this selective world history narrowed down as it impacts God's people. We see this beginning in verse 5. Verses 5 through 20, again, as I said, this is now history as seen from the vantage point of God's people suffering collateral damage. Because what we begin to see, beginning in verse 5, is this phrase, the king of the north and the king of the south. You see that. Again, I mean, as I read, just think back. The king of the north does this, and then the king of the south does this. The king of the north does and, and you can read it, and if you have no context, you're saying, what king, what king of the north? What king of the south? What are we talking about here? Well, if you keep in mind that this is a history from the vantage point of God's people, then the king of the south is the king that is south of Israel. The king of the north is the king that is north of Israel. And what we see from history is that Alexander's empire was split between four generals, but scripture focuses on two of them. The Ptolemies, which were the kings of the south in Egypt, and the Seleucids, which were the king of the north in Syria and Babylon. And we see that these kings are just called the king of the north and the king of the south, the king of the north and king of the south. That's not referring to the same guy. That's referring to successive kings of the north and the south. I mean, this covers lots of time. It covers 150 years from the death of Alexander to the rise of Antiochus Epiphanes. These are different kings, but they all had the same name. I mean, they, were, they all went by Ptolemy 1, 2, 3, 4, so it doesn't matter anyway. Uh, that's, that's what they named themselves. But what's interesting is if you just look at the way these two kings act, it's incredible uh, what they're doing. I mean, just look at this history. And they're, they're raising up armies, and they're, and they're smashing the other king, and then the other king raises up his army, and he goes back and attacks, and they're stealing from each other, and they're warring with each other, and this just goes on and goes on and goes on. And what we need to understand is that the reason we're zeroing in on this is because Israel is sandwiched in between this warfare. That Israel is like the bombed out land that was in between the trenches in World War I. The land that Tolkien, when he saw it, when he fought in the trenches, he thought of when he, when he wrote Lord of the Rings, he, he fashioned Mordor after this bombed out uh, no man's land. 
we see, again, history unfolding. In verses 16 to 20, we see this kind of, uh, all of this intrigue and things going on, and uh, this person, this daughter, uh, in verse 17, this daughter that's given in marriage, is Cleopatra. Now, it's not the Cleopatra that you and I know. It's not the Cleopatra that's involved in Mark Antony and, and Julius Caesar. It's Cleopatra the first. The one that we know is Cleopatra the seventh. But this is nonetheless someone that we know in history. And she was given in marriage by, to Ptolemy V by her father, Antiochus III. Now, Antiochus III, all of these things, he did conquer many cities in the coastland, just as was said to Daniel, and he was eventually defeated by the Roman general named Scipio. And Miriam and I were just reading a history book together this past week. We were reading Machiavelli's The Prince, and he talks about Scipio in that. And so we know about these people, but one of the things that was it's interesting in all of this back and forth and all this history is that when Scipio defeated <clears throat> Antiochus III, he took his son with him back to Rome. Uh, he kidnapped his son, and his son is Antiochus IV, who eventually becomes Antiochus Epiphanes. And so we can see how even the collateral damage of sin in this world and the warfare that goes on in this world can impact future leaders who see Antiochus Epiphanes saw his father slaughtered before his eyes, before he was hauled off into captivity in Rome. And when he came to power, he unleashed all of his hatred on everyone he came in contact with. But all of this warring and scheming and chaos goes on for 150 years with Israel sandwiched in the middle, unable to stop it. And according to scholars, the suffering that Israel went through in this vice grip was unspeakable, was horrific, bloodshed, people being homes being destroyed. I mean, Israel was like the land that you just rampaged through as you attacked the person that you wanted to get to. One scholar says this, the horrific bloodshed experience there really had nothing to do with Israel directly, but nonetheless affected them greatly. Think of Israel as a no-man's land, repeatedly changing hands in the blood-soaked conflicts of foreigners. And what we have to understand as we think of this part of Israel's history, remember Daniel thought, okay, great, the, the exiles are going to return, they're going to rebuild the temple, and it's going to be paradise. And what he keeps being told is, no, God's people are going to suffer for a long time. And what we have to understand when we read this history of what happened to God's people during this time in history is that God's people, you and I, Christian, are not immune to suffering in this world. We are not immune to suffering that is caused by collateral damage by those who have power in this world. I don't know about you. I mean, I know that, that in some ways it's always hard to talk about these things because here we sit in a in a nice church building where we're not, you know, uh, w walking away as refugees from burned out uh, cities hauling our crying children with us. But we see that going on even now all over the world. I mean, how many times do you turn on the news and see people, the small people, the people that are not involved in the conflicts, and yet they are the ones suffering due to the conflict? We're not dealing with that 
But in some ways, right, even you and I, Christian, can wake up in the morning, put our pants on, go to our job, feel like nobodies, and look at what our leaders are doing and think, I wish I could do something to intervene. I wish I could do something to stop this, but, but alas, I can't. I, all I can do is go on with my life and place everything in God's hands. And that's what we are called to do. That's one of the things that we have to understand when we read this history and when we see it in light of the unseen realm is we can say to ourselves, I might not have any power to change anything in the seen realm, but I know the one who has power to change things in the unseen realm. I was talking with uh, Andrew. I hope this doesn't embarrass him. Uh, but uh, I was talking with him uh, the other week, a few weeks ago, and, uh, and just you know, expressing um, uh, just a lot of things, sorrow uh, over my friend's death and, and just frustration over things going on in the world. And, and, and my son, he, he, he just poured out on me for about 20 minutes straight, just incredible biblical wisdom. He said, Dad, think about it. And he just went on and on. And one of the things that really stood out to me is he said, Dad, the, 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 you're thinking the only thing you can do is pray, but that's the best thing you can do. Because God has more power to change all of these things than you or I ever will have. You know, and I, and, you know, it's just a, a, an amazing moment, and I thanked him for that later. See, sometimes God's people suffer greatly from collateral damage just like anyone else. But we see that sometimes it is much, much worse for God. As, as bad as that was, we see beginning in verse 21, it narrows down even more. And now we see history as seen from the vantage point of God's people suffering persecution. We see Antiochus Epiphanes comes back, okay? Antiochus Epiphanes, he was hostage in Rome as a little boy, and he comes back as a contemptible person, verse 21. And what we see is that he unleashes his fury and he is bent on destroying the people of God and destroying their faith. We see in verses 28 through 35 that he sets himself against the people of the Holy Covenant. It's interesting that it even gets into such detail that it says he invades the south. One more time. So he's, he's going to Egypt and he's trying, he, he thinks he's going to invade. He's had uh, success previously. But we're, we're even told by this angel that when he tries to invade the south again, the ships of Kittim shall come against him and he will be afraid and withdraw. That actually, again, happens in history. That Antiochus Epiphanes tries to invade Egypt. And he only gets so far when the ships of Kittim, the ships from Rome, meet him. And a Roman... Uh, a commander named Gaius, he meets Antiochus face to face right outside the city of Alexandria. And he basically tells Antiochus, you need to make up your mind now. You're either going to go forward and be destroyed by us, or you're going to turn back 
with your tail between your legs and leave. And he actually drew a circle around Antiochus and said, before you leave this circle, you make up your mind. Antiochus wisely turned back and went back. He didn't accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. He was stopped by the Romans, but when he came back, he was enraged. And when he returned, he unleashed his rage on the Israelites and on the temple and on their religion. He, he, he unleashed everything he had. And one scholar says this, he was bound and determined to eradicate not so much the people as their faith. This is the first time really in all world history where you have that kind of diabolical motive for the eradication of people's faith. No wonder so many verses in this chapter are given to Antiochus Epiphanes. It is because of this malevolence, this demonically inspired loathing of the people of God. And as I mentioned uh, a couple of sermons ago, uh, when we were looking at chapter 8, the book of 1 Maccabees, which you can read, it's, it's, it's not scripture, but it is uh, valuable history. It goes into, into detail as to how diabolical and wicked and mean-spirited uh, Antiochus Epiphanes was. Uh, he um, he de- completely desecrated the temple. He went in and set up an altar to Zeus on the temple of the Lord, and he sacrificed a pig, the, the worst thing he could think of, on that altar. He forbade the people of Israel to worship God. He forbade them to circumcise their children. He forbade any offerings burnt offerings or anything. And if he found any infant that had been circumcised, he killed the infant and the, child, and, the, and the parents. Maccabees says this, many in Israel stood firm. They were resolved in their hearts not to eat unclean food. They chose to die rather than to be revi- defiled by food or to profane the holy covenant, and they did die. Very great wrath came upon Israel. We even see in verses 32 through 35 that this persecution of God's people caused, if you will, a church split, as often happens throughout church history. When persecution intensifies, some in the church walk away. Because, as one scholar says, in this reign of terror, it seemed the only choice was to be a live pagan or a dead Israelite. That was your choice. And as is told to Daniel, we see that he seduces some. He seduces with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God stand firm. They stand firm, but they are taken by sword and by flame, by captivity and plunder. Some turn away and some are purified in fire. The Antiochus Epiphanes may have been the first to do this kind of rampaging attack on God's people, but he wasn't the last. All we have to do is look through church history after him, and we see leader after leader after leader. In fact, every Sunday, just about, we lift up the persecuted church. Those Christians around the world today living in places like North Korea and China and Nigeria who face the same decision, either be a live pagan or a dead Christian. 
or a live and free pagan or an imprisoned Christian or a tortured Christian. Now, again, as we sit here today in this cozy church building, uh, it's important, I think, that we, we remember what's going on with our brothers and sisters around the world. Because what we don't want to do is take what we suffer and in any way equate it with what they're going through. None of us in this room, I trust, has been threatened with your life over being a Christian. or been threatened by torture over being a Christian. But nonetheless, nonetheless, we can all, if I'm sure if we talked with each other after the service, can recount times where because we spoke about our faith in Christ or tried to share with somebody about our faith in Christ, we're mocked for it. We're perhaps threatened with losing a job over it, told to be quiet or else, perhaps, or, or else you can't work here anymore. Things like that. Peter says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Jesus said, blessed are you when others revile you and utter, utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. According to Scripture, Antiochus Epiphanes is a foretaste of what is to come because verses 36 to 45, again, I think, shows history as seen from the vantage point of God's people suffering persecution throughout history and up to the last days when Christ returns again. One scholar, I think it was Sinclair Ferguson, he, he talks about how <clears throat> even while the language of Daniel eleven thirty six through 39 seems to fit Antiochus in a way, the passage as a whole seems to be speaking of a king who will be larger and more ultimate version of Antiochus. And that's what is so neat about this history. Because the history that is given is generic enough that names are not given, that it's the king of the north and the king of the south, the king of the north and the king of the, another king. What we see is that spans of time can be uh, crossed and that because it's nameless, a king can speak for many kings to come. That's oftentimes what we see in prophecy, that there is an immediate fulfillment and that that fulfillment is fulfilled greater in a larger way later in time. We've already seen that in Daniel chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. There was a fourth kingdom, the kingdom of Rome, that was larger and more terrifying than all the other kingdoms. But as we noted, it seems like it began as Rome, but that it kind of morphed into something larger and scarier than Rome. Something that again, resembled Antiochus, but was even more terrifying. And as I said in that sermon, the little horn that comes out of that is what the New Testament refers to as the Antichrist, the final man of lawlessness, this one who is going to oppose Christ and his people. And I think that's what we see here, which we will look at more next week. But what I want to leave us with is this. Christian, our God is the God of history. 
As we read this passage, we see all of this detail. And we see so much detail, such exacting detail about things that were to happen hundreds of years later that many, many scholars that don't believe in the omnipotence and the sovereignty of God, many of them probably don't even believe there is a God at all, believe that this had to have been written after the fact. It's too exact. It's too precise. No one could have written this ahead of time. It had to have been written after everything happened and then written back into this as prophecy. Why do they say that? It, it's because they say it's impossible. It's impossible for any man, even someone as wise as Daniel, to know everything that's going to happen in the future. And you know they're right. They're right. It is impossible for any man. But all the way back in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel answers King Nebuchadnezzar and says, you know, king, no wise man, no enchanter, no magician, no astrologer can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. The angel tells Daniel before he goes into all of this history that what I'm about to reveal to you, Daniel, is the book of truth. It's what he calls it. He doesn't just say, Daniel, I'm going to tell you about some stuff that happens. He says, Daniel, no, I'm going to reveal to you the book of truth. And the Hebrew word translated truth means that which is certain, that which is sure. How can the future, how can the future, which, which hasn't happened yet in time, be shared with Daniel with absolute certainty? It's because these things are being shared not simply by an angel, but by the God of history. Friends, God is outside of space and time. He created them both. Isaiah, God speaking through Isaiah, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. The book of Daniel has been talking about the God of history and his sovereign reign from the first two verses of the book, if we've been paying any attention. Now, does that mean that human beings are simply puppets on a string with no free will? Not at all. All you need to do is go back and read through, and you see how all of these things are being done by these actors for their reasons. We see again and again, in fact, I would say that the stress is on the freedom of choice that these actors have, that they are doing what they're doing for their own rationale, whether it be money or fame or power or glory. What they do is done for a purpose. It's done for their purposes. And yet, at the same time, as Jim mentioned in the men's group on Tuesday, the word that continues to be said is this shall happen. Not this might happen, but that it shall. 
While all of these actors are doing what they're doing for their purposes, behind the scenes, God is weaving His grand plan, and everything they do for their purposes are fulfilling the magnificent plan of God. And we see this most magnificently in the cross of Christ. When Peter preached his sermon at Pentecost, he said, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. This Jesus was delivered up, was crucified according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And yet, you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. Both things are true, friends. All of these little kings, all of these little kings ruled for a time. But where are they now? For a time, Israel seemed like nothing. And all of these Ptolemies and Seleucids seemed like they had all the power. And when God's people were caught in this vice grip, they seemed unstoppable forces. But again and again and again, if you just read through chapter 11 again, you'll see that all of their kingdoms are futile. They all come to an end. Sinclair Ferguson says, the word that keeps coming up again and again and again is the word but. They ruled, he did this, he did that, but it came to an end. But he did not succeed. But he failed. But in the end, he was killed. Where are all these world powers now? You know, I love ancient history. I did a double major in history and ancient studies, and I didn't know most of these guys. I had to look them up. I've never heard of so many of these kings. They've all fallen by the wayside. They've all become a bunch of nobodies in the grand scheme of history. But Christian, contrary to them, the king whose humble beginnings came out of a stable has gone on to be the most influential person in all of human history. The true king, Jesus, has changed the world. Though the nations rage, kingdoms rise and fall, there is still one king reigning over all. Christian, as we depart today, remember this. If God was faithful, the God who's outside of space and time was faithful to fulfill all of these promises to the T that were future for Daniel but past for us, he will be faithful to fulfill to the T all of the promises that are still future for us. O eternal weight of glory, O inheritance divine, we will see our Lord redeeming every past and future time. All of our pains will be transfigured like the scars of Christ our Lord, and we will see the weight of glory and our broken years restored. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this massive text that nonetheless reveals that you are the God of history. Father, thank you for sharing with us this morning that though there are powerful leaders in world history that do according to their own diabolical desires, their fallen desires, yet behind the scenes you are weaving your perfect plan.
Please remind us of that as we leave today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.